Before we start the show, I would like to give a shout out for another local business. Now, when I say local, I mean local to me. <laughs> the Stroud Smokehouse, which can be found at the Stroud Farmer's Market most Saturdays. It's run by Ian, and it has a fascinating selection. The smoked olives, smoked salt, and smoked salmon are all amazing. However, for me, the real taste sensation are the smoked dates. Yep, that's what I said, smoked dates. They are just incredible. This is just a small selection. There is much, much more available. So if you are around the Stroud Farmer's Market on a Saturday, why not pop over to the Stroud Smokehouse store? You won't regret it. Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. The Reviews Show is back. This month, reviews include Nightmare Alley, Belfast and Moonfall. Only quality movies from your At The Flicks team. Before that, there's a distinct lack of quality, as Jeff gives us his monthly film news roundup. At least that means there's going to be no more references to Thank God It's Friday now. <laughs> And for listeners interested in real quality, the Darren's Dash Show will be returning shortly. Nice plug, Darren. Greetings and salutations, I'm Jeff. Hi, my name is Graham. Hi, my name is Neil. Hi, my name is Phil, and you can find my reviews online at Phil the Bear blog. Hi, I'm Darren, and other than being on At The Flicks, you can follow me on Twitter at DazzleLovesMovie, and read my blogs at halfgarder.com. Are you all excited for this month's film news column? (laughs) (laughs) Stunning silence. Not excited, nervous. As nervous as I would be to watch the next Jimmy Carr Netflix special, if there ever is another one. You have so much in common with Jimmy Carr. Do you mean I'm talented and funny? No, you're frequently way over any decency boundary and you've had dodgy tax dealings. As you get older, you're getting more and more cynical, Neil. Are you surprised Neil's picking on you, especially after all you revealed about Golfgate last month? Assuming it was wrong. I couldn't speak about all of the gory details, to be (laughs) honest. I couldn't mention some of it as it's subject to a police inquiry. Really, Jeff? Phil, I wouldn't lie to you. I'd love to give more details about what happened on that 18th hole and share some of the photos that may or may not exist, but I'm bound by the Hippocratic Oath. Our postbag <laughs> is a critical been... oath. <laughs> <laughs> Our postbag has been bulging with requests for more details, especially from listener Frank, who was annoyed he wasn't invited. <laughs> he said him and his mate Tiger were free that day. All we need is a chocolate bar in a swimming pool and we've got the plot to Caddyshack. <laughs> yeah, except in this case it wasn't a chocolate bar, No, Darren. no. no. <laughs> Enough <laughs> Jesus love of God, tell us the film news. <laughs> okay, this month's film news, guys. Let's see how many of these films you know. Let's talk. So I've got three bits of film news, as usual. Shortly to start filming in Los Angeles is Sniff. That's Sniff, Neil. Don't get excited. Oh, Jesus. Sniff <laughs> stands for Senior Nursing Institution and Family Foundation. It's a film noir set around a retirement home. Oh, actually, maybe it is for you, Neil. Officer and the Gentleman director Taylor Hackford helms this feature, which stars Morgan Freeman as a retired police detective. Come on, 
is he ever anything else other than president? Who's brought back out of retirement by his ex-partner Danny DeVito to investigate a case of drugs, sex and murder in a high-end retirement community. Oh, sounds like something listener Frank will be very interested in. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you've made that up entirely. I look forward to all the scenes where Morgan Freeman is standing or sitting <laughs> and absolutely not moving under any circumstances. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably, right? So, yeah. Well, the villains of the piece, to get your interest even more, Phil... Uh, Al Pacino and Hackford's real-life wife, Helen Mirren, and she's Ooh. playing a character called, wait for it, The Spider. Now, <laughs> I think this sounds classy, and I think it's going to do well at next year's award season, especially for us oldies, people who might like The Duke. Um, <laughs> if it's as entertaining as watching Al Pacino walk along the road with his headphones in that came out recently, I'm all in. Okay, then. Now, one of the joys of putting this brief column together is seeing the smile of rapture spread across Graham's face whenever I mention oh, no. what his hero, the Mel, has been filming. So, Graham, prepare to get excited. And I, and I mean that for you in all senses. Filming has recently wrapped in North Carolina on a thriller with supernatural overtones called Boys of Summer. Set in the 1990s, a teenage boy played by Mason Thames suspects that there may be a force not of this world behind the disappearance of some of his friends. It's like when you tell people you support Fulham, Graham. The enterprising young lad hires a private detective, played, of course, by the Mel, back in heroic oh, mode, no. <laughs> to find out who is behind these strange goings-on. Now, Graham, you may very well be interested in knowing that while they were filming in Southport, North Carolina... The Mel was a regular visitor at Mr. P's Bistro on Howe Street. So when you next go there, you may actually sit on a seat that the Mel put his bum on before you. <laughs> oh, God. And finally on film. That this is month. wrong on so many levels, <laughs> yeah. Jeff. God, yeah. oh, my. And finally in film news this month, filming in Derbyshire during April and May is the period drama Firebrand, although that title may change, about the life of Catherine Parr, the last wife of Henry VIII. Sounds like it could be a bit dull. Fear not, Neil. There is excitement here, as it's being described as a, and I quote, psychological horror. And it's about Parr's almost daily struggle to survive, given the increasingly violent King's mood swings. Acclaimed Brazilian director, wait for this one, Karim Anuez, who made the famous O Su de Sula, will make his English language debut with Firebrand, working on a script from Killing Eve writers Henrietta and Jessica Ashworth. While the behind-the-screen credentials are solid, in front of the camera, the talent is even more intriguing. Michelle Williams will portray Parr, and Jude Law will find it good to be the king. They're currently looking for extras who look like they could fit into the period. So there could be work there for you, Graham. Thank you. It's not far. Catherine Parr is buried eight miles from where I live in Sudley Castle. Did you know All her right. personally? No. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go to the uh, wedding? <laughs> so, so I guess my question is, any of those film items uh, not new to you guys? And are there any of those films you'd go see? Obviously, I know what Graham's going to say. So. <laughs> I, 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 I still think you made one of them up. I think so, yeah. <laughs> it's like that icebreaker. Yeah. There's three, three, what is it, two truths and one line. We've got a guess. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely yeah, the first Jeff, one. would I lie to you? Yeah. yeah. Yes, you would. Yeah. What about you, Darren? Would you see those films? 
I'm just really missing the quiz. (laughs) (laughs) One one more one for this. We've got one more lined up and we'll go back to the quiz. (laughs) Yeah, when when are we getting more Marvel news? We're only interested in Moon Knight right now, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, when there's something interesting, I'll report it, Phil. Don't you worry. It may be some time, though. And now for something completely different as we start the reviews, beginning with Licorice Pizza. What are your plans? I don't know. What's your future look like? I don't know. How do you like working at Tiny Toes? I hate working at Tiny Toes. You should start your own business. (laughs) What business should I be in? I don't know. What do you like? I don't know. You're an actress. You should be an actress. So how'd you become such a hotshot actor? I'm a showman. It's my calling. I don't know how to do anything else. It's what I'm meant to do. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been a song and dance man. Come on. Ever since you were a kid. Song and dance man. Where are your parents? My mom works for me. Oh, of course she does. Yes, she does in my public relations company. In your public relations company? Because you have that. Yes. And you're an actor. Yes. And you're a secret agent, too. (laughs) Well, no, I'm not a secret agent. (laughs) That's funny. The latest from highly acclaimed writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson is a period-set coming-of-age story. 1973 and 15-year-old Gary Valentine, Cooper Hoffman, son of the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, is a child actor and hustler who was a chance encounter with a much older Alana, played by musician Alana Hyam. Gary is immediately captivated with her and gets Alana involved with some of his business schemes. Their adventures include the local fallout from the impact of the 1973 oil crisis and a meeting with larger-than-life film producer John Peters, as played by Bradley Cooper. The film is called Licorice Pizza because that American record store was very evocative in recreating that period for Paul Thomas Anderson. Phil, even though you weren't born then, did this movie create a sense of time and place for you? It absolutely does. And now time for the balanced review where Phil raves about a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Um, <laughs> don't don't yeah. mix him up with Paul W.S. Anderson. I know this. Oh, yeah, no, don't you worry. I, I won't have difficulty with that. <laughs> I loved it. I was captivated throughout. But I mean, just caveat. I mean, this has, it's written, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, scored by Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead. It's got cameos from Tom Waits and Benny Safdie. It's got Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, and it's got Alana Haim and her entire family, in fact. Mm-hmm. I'm, a hu- I'm a huge fan of the band. So if I didn't like it, I would have been really, really surprised. I think any sort of Paul Thomas Anderson fans will kind of feel quite familiar and, and happy in, in what this film does. Like Boogie Nights and Inherent Vice, it's got this amazing ability to recreate the era that he puts them in. And just like Punch Drunk Love, that's just a peculiar romance story in the San Fernando Valley, which PTA seems to love. The main plot, I think, I and mean, you kind of said it there, it's kind of a coming-of-age story for both of the main characters and, and will they or won't they get together. But for me, that's just kind of the through line for just a number of weird and wonderful stories that kind of take place around it. Mm. To some extent, he's more interested in just setting that tone and having those kind of weird stories. So you know, the waterbed cell stuff is just bonkers. <laughs> the cameo from Bradley Cooper, and if you don't all talk about it, I'd be really surprised. So he plays real-life producer John Peters. 
He's barely in the film for 10 minutes and he's just hilarious. I think within the first minute of him appearing on screen, he's asking uh, Cooper Hoffman about the size of his penis. I mean, it's just bizarre and hilarious. Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman are both absolutely amazing. Both their first time in a leading role. You know, you've got a musician mm-hmm. and a son of an actor. They're both stunning. Really, really great. Johnny Greenwood's score is beautiful. I listened to it a little bit after um, the film because it's just lovely. But there's also a perfectly curated set of songs from the era that sort of play around as well. The side stories, the love story, it's just all utterly brilliant. I'm going to get my swipe in early at Jeff. <laughs> Unless, of course, you get bored easily because you just, you're just sitting there and you're requiring some sort of constant momentum. You're going to love this film. Okay, I just want to pick up, and I do get bored easily, and I will come back to that in a bit, don't worry. Do you think with this and a number of his other films, and I'm picking this up from your review, he's more interested in characters than story? Uh, Yeah, I think he is to some extent. I mean, a lot of his films just spend time in either an era and the characters in there. You could probably accuse a number of his films of doing that, But I don't have an issue with that. So if you don't get on with his previous films, I don't think you're going to get on with this either. The issue is, is like I said, right at the top, I love his films. So for me, it's just more of the same. In the same way as I I love Wes Anderson films um, and people accuse them of being samey. Okay, fair enough. Graham? A coming-of-age story with running yeah, uh, yeah. And running, I forgot about that. Good call. <laughs> yeah. Anderson, I think in this one, finds a more relaxed pacing for his latest film. So gone are the intense toast buttering of Phantom Thread or the milkshake drinking of There Will Be Blood, replaced with a, a 70s LA freewheeling odd couple romance. Uh, the two people in love, I think they're in love. Two people who drive each other crazy in, is such a great platform for comedy. Oh, so, I'm making a film about me and Neil then. Uh, oh, you're not charming or engaging, so neither of you are. <laughs> Thank you. Anybody you, else said that about Neil? They'd be uh, <laughs> What rock band are you guys in then? Yes. Okay. Um, so let's address the elephant in the room shall we the young man in pursuit of an older woman that young man being cooper hoffman the woman he is pursuing is alana heng from the rock band hiam uh, this is anderson having fun and pointing the finger at the hollywood system that constantly insists that older men and younger women are the only possible coupling this coupling whilst not as extreme in age gap as harold and maud has generated the same amount amount of missing the point reviews. I suppose the people who run the films down are happy with the 70-year age gap between Clint Eastwood and most of his love interests in his last few films. I I suspect those people wouldn't be watching Clint Eastwood movies. (laughs) Okay. So, Phil said it. Anderson recreates the 70s with such ease that I just fell back into my own teenage years with his world building, completely populates it with crazy, almost slapstick characters and just lets it roll. The film is a slice of life, a visual stream of consciousness. I was captivated. This movie is 
also a film nerd's delight with great moments where Gary and Alana run into one another, literally, in front of a movie theatre showing Live and Let Die. Although Edgar Wright got there first with his Thunderball premiere in Last Night in Soho. The soundtrack is also very 70s. We get jukebox slams of Paul McCartney, Let Me Roll It, and David Bowie's Life on Mars, where we actually see a lawman beating up the wrong guy. A much less intense film from Anderson, but I would put this right up there with Boogie Nights and Inherit Vice. Not his best, but time well spent, and I did laugh a lot. Fair enough. Neil? Oh, this one rattles along. The 135-minute runtime, I'm going to start doing this because I'm, I'm starting to get bored after two two hours, but I didn't get bored two of this minutes, one. Two minutes, probably, Neil. Uh, yeah, probably. Sharply observed, detailed, inventive, funny, a sort of once upon a time in Hollywood, but way better. That's fighting talk. Fighting talk, is it? Alana Haim is excellent. I had no idea she was a rock star, so that probably helped the on-off relationship with Cooper Hoffman entirely believable, as you two, you guys have said. Uh, what I like most, despite the many storylines, Paul Thomas Anderson never loses sight of the main thread, which is that sort of on-off relationship between the two of them. I thought it was brilliant. Um, the Hollywood stars, the political sleaze, gas shortages and the like are all used to move the two main protagonists closer together or further apart. Oh, and Lucille Ball, fantastic. I love that bit. <laughs> William Holden and John Peters, priceless. I thoroughly enjoy this one. A brilliant story in a slice of life in 70s Hollywood. It must have been the weirdest place to grow up in, as Paul Thomas Anderson did. Sorry, I'll just point out to you, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood actually had a plot there's Ooh, a difference. This does have a plot. Yeah, sort of. We'll come on love, to that. It's a love story between two people, and then, and then putting all these different threads of this whole sort of slice of uh, Americana or a San Fernando, San Fernando Valley, San, San Fernando, Fernando Valley. You, you just mentioned the and, gas shortages. The scene yeah. where they've got to get to the petrol station. Yeah. That was deadly. That was exciting. That was. That yes. was great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah. I Bradley Cooper's performance in that is just off the chart. He is oh, I thought bonkers, he was way overacting. <laughs> well, yeah, the, we'll the guy it's based to, on. We'll come back to Bradley Cooper in a the bit. The guy yeah. it's based on is that is what he was like. Apparently, oh, John, John Peters. He's yeah. mental. Yeah. We'll we'll talk sometime about what he, he was at one point the producer of a Superman film, and he said, "I'm going to do it, but Superman's got to fight the giant spider." Darren, <laughs> over to you. Okay, so I've got to admit I'm not a Paul Thomas Anderson fan, even though I really like Boogie Nights. But for the most part, I really, really did enjoy this, and I thought it was great. But it's a weird feeling that even though I enjoyed it, something about it really did piss me off. But I'll I'll come to that in a bit. This was a great coming-of-age story, and made up of all these like really incredible, wild little adventures of um, two friends who were sort of edging back and forth between being romantic with each other. And all these stories were great. All this, you know, the, the whole story about the, the, you know, the, the waterbed business and um, uh, Cooper Hoffman being mistaken for a ser- for, for a murderer at one point and getting arrested. And then there was the weird encounter with Bradley Cooper and then the whole descent into that amazing runaway truck storyline. And we're just all these bizarre, really entertaining, you know, sometimes funny stories. And what kept it all together was this absolutely wonderful chemistry between Alana Haim and, and Cooper Hoffman. 
and and this friendship that I have, and I, I became really invested with that, and the ups and downs of their sort of possible, uh, you know, romance and everything. So, so for the most part, for, I actually love this film. My, my my problem is, and and I'd really try not to get et up on, on when a film does something that I story wise that I don't want it to do. But there was a moment in this film where. There's this scene where Alana, you, you see her, she realises that she's outgrown this younger group that she's been spending all this time with. And after that, she goes off and does her own thing. She gets involved in politics. She becomes a success. And while well, he goes off and he opens this like thriving bin, uh, pinball palace. And I was quite happy for this to be basically going towards like a La La Land ending where... You know, but the two have gone their separate ways, but they're sort of happier for it, but they remember the good times, but they've moved on. Um, but what I really hated is this really, and I, I was really baffled by this, is when she goes running back to him and they actually get into a natural relationship and it just, it, it didn't work for me. It just seemed a complete and utter backtrack. And, and the thing that I think really drove it is that, frankly, she was far too good for him. You know, she. Uh, you know, he. He. <laughs> frank, he, he. Frankly, was this uh, was an, an an annoying prick, and there was nothing in there that to <laughs> me earned. There was nothing in there earned for the, for them to to actually you know get back together and for this you know for her to finally you know to to go back for him. But I, I was just completely baffled in it. And, you know, I, I I just did not get that. I thought as friends and as comrades, it worked really well. But but for me, them them going off into the sunset, it did spoil what I uh, what I really was in, enjoying and loving as a movie. And though I did enjoy it and love it, the, the ending just sort of left a, a, a bad taste in my mouth. And I just thought it was a complete step back on Alana's character. Uh, so so yeah, so it's it's a really great, fun, cool movie for for, for the most part. But I just that that ending, I just absolutely hated. That's a quick no, question for you. So you, you just mentioned the, the politics bit. Did ever did anyone else feel that was like taxi driver vibes with Sybil Shepherd's Oh no, yeah. funny. No, yeah, I, yeah. I, I got the Harvey Milk uh, story out of it. Yeah, yeah. That okay. too. Yeah. 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 But uh, I did have a problem with the political scenes, which I'll come on to in a minute. Now, and you've all given really good reviews on this, so I'm gonna tie my review into my favourite subject, me. Uh that there's there's a lot I have in common with this movie. I was around. <laughs> I was around that age in 1973. You're... Although I wish I had that level of confidence, and I was also surrounded by Valley Girls. Unfortunately, they were of the South Wales and not Hollywood variety. <laughs> and if you don't know the difference, make sure you stay that way. Oh, Trust God. me, yeah, yeah. you can't handle the truth. My point is, there's a real nostalgia kick with this film for me. That glow of the past and on Los Angeles, I saw almost nightly on TV and various cop shows and things. It just brought it all back. So it won me over almost immediately. And that affection was cemented by the two very appealing leads, Elena Hayam and Cooper Hoffman. They're not the traditional, normal, attractive leads for this type of romantic comedy mm. drama, even though at first glance, the story of boy meets girl might seem familiar. And I was thinking about this after I saw it. The only film I can think of, which is sort of similar, is a mid-70s teen romance film called Jeremy. And I know Commode goes on about it all the time, but it is actually a good film. That is a much better feature in comparison as, oh, it had a script. Licorice Pizza, and I can't even begin to tell you how much that spelling 
bloody annoys me. It's just OCD, more, Jeff. Yeah, that's all. That's what, that's what my wife says. Let it go. This is far more freewheeling. And that's the problem in an otherwise engaging character piece. It's too long for such slight material. Phil's already mentioned this, and he's right. It's far too long. It's almost a season. Uh, it's almost a series of sketches, and it shows the weakness that Paul Thomas Anderson sometimes has. It is his scripts. They meander far too much. After about an hour, my mind started to wander. I started to reflect on my days back in the valleys. There just wasn't enough to hold my attention. Even the fun of spotting the loosely disguised Lucille Ball and William Holden, which, by the way, is a great Sean Penn performance, started to wane. And then the movie came back to life, thanks to Bradley Cooper. His version of movie producer and hairdresser John Peters is amazing. This was a manic, over-the-top and mesmerising performance. Even more barking was that the real Peters was told in advance how he would be portrayed and had little issue with it. (laughs) (laughs) It brought me right back into the film, especially as it was followed by that escapade with a sort of Harvey Milk subplot. And I thought, you know, unlike what Darren was saying, I thought I, I did find the ending satisfying. But let's talk about that ending for another reason. And we've hinted at this. A lot of people have been complaining about the age difference. And I want to address the point about people who say the central relationship is a paedophile one. The short answer, that's absolute bollocks. <laughs> Show me the boy of 15 who doesn't have a crush on someone who is older, whether they're male or female. It is an accurate reflection of that coming of age experience. Will this couple have a life together after the movie? Of course not. But that non-sexual moment at the end is important. And ultimately, both will move on as did the real people that this is based on. It's the bloody woke brigade striking again. So don't be put off. Don't go woke. Check this out for yourself. If you want somebody to complain about, then ask why an editor wasn't used properly on the movie. Other than that, and some script self-indulgence, it's well worth checking out. So when you say about the real people, I don't know if does everyone know that story, that this is allegedly Paul Thomas Anderson's sort of real thing where he fancied his teacher, which is Alana Haim's mum. Oh, I, right. know that. I, did, I did not know that. Oh, dear no, God. Yeah, so apparently Alana Haim's mother was his art teacher or something like that, yeah. and he had a huge crush on her. Yes, yeah, art teachers, eh? Well, that's going to be a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Right. Mm. Blimey. Yeah. You've got their daughter. You got on well with your arts teacher, didn't you, Neil? He was pretty good, are you? <laughs> <laughs> She was very nice. So, right. I, uh, can I get on with it? Yes. Yeah, good. A good start for our first film review of the year. That was Licorice Pizza, which is playing in cinemas and can be rented via streaming. Let's see if the good vibes continue with our next feature, another one set in the past, Belfast. We all have a story to tell. But what makes each one different? is not how the story ends, but rather the place where it begins. Mama says if we went across the water, they wouldn't understand the way we talk. If they can't understand you, then they're not listening. You know who you are, don't you? Your buddy from Belfast, where everybody knows you. to cleanse the community away but you wouldn't want to be the old man out in the street touch my family and i'll kill you are we gonna have to leave belfast we'll fight this together 
This is it. This is what? This is war. Another coming-of-age film, this time set mainly in the summer of 1969. Buddy, Jude Hill, is the youngest member of a Protestant family living peacefully in Belfast. That is, until a night of rioting as militant types intimidate the local Catholics. It is the start of a period known today as The Troubles. For Buddy and his family, tough choices have to be made. Do they stay in a city where they have roots, but is becoming more violent by the day, or look elsewhere to start a new life? Filmed in black and white, writer-director Kenneth Branagh based it on his early life. Graham, as someone who lived in Belfast at the time, is this a realistic interpretation of events? Oh, I'd say yes. Um, But this film really is back to my childhood to watch a film about growing up Belfast at the start of the Troubles. And the film was not what I was expecting. Um, I thought this was a film that would focus on the strife and the misery of the 60s in Belfast, but it quickly changed into a love letter to a way of life that was destroyed by people fighting over who'd got the best imaginary friend. Petty criminals aided by religion built their own little empires of hate and mistrust and seized the opportunity to ruin the lives of two million people and scatter their children across the globe. So, uh, Sorry I, to cut into your review there. I just want to give a little anecdote there from you. Didn't you once run into people who you told were an atheist and they had a comeback for you? Oh, yeah, they did. They asked me if I was a Catholic atheist or a Protestant atheist. Because <laughs> you have to pick a side. You, you can't stay in. pick a side, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, I mean, for me, this film was a joy for all the wrong reasons. We get a family drama, a coming-of-age story, a nugget of social history seen from the perspective of a nine-year-old boy. And then the bleak backdrop of the troubles enhance the poignancy of the the love and the sense of community rather than overpowering or diminishing it. I was really, really touched by this film. The humour, music, despite it being from mostly from Van Morrison. (laughs) (laughs) And if he's listening to this podcast, you still owe us 12 quid for turning up and only doing a 45-minute gig, you tight git. (laughs) <laughs> right, okay. Um, the humour, the music and the family with loads of weird aunties and cousins a sparkle in the dark days of Northern Ireland's history. This shouldn't work, but it does. It's absolutely charming. Personally, this is a, a film of perspectives, both Branagh's and mine. I relate to a lot of the film from playing outside from the moment you got home from school to watching cowboy films, sitting on the floor far too close to a tiny black and white TV. We see Belfast from multiple viewpoints. I love this. Obviously, you see it from the nine-year-old buddy who sees the whole of Belfast as his playground, but also his parents with their worries and troubles and separation and struggles. And the grandparents as sort of the bedrock of Buddy's life and dancing in the parlour while the city burns, you know. And the community trying to come to terms with a seismic shock of rupturing their lives. It was just so well put together from all those perspectives. I love the, this close-up and personal view, viewpoint and the village-like environment that confined Buddy's world. I left the cinema with no more information on the Troubles, but a much deeper understanding of the strangely similar lives of ordinary people growing up across Belfast. And, I, and as a kid, I totally related to this. You know, we'd hear all this stuff on the TV 
but it wouldn't really impact my life. I was still out playing in the street and things like that. Great film. And another stunner from Mr. Brammer. So one thing I noticed in the film was that they didn't seem to side against the army. You know, the army were there. They were a presence. They were imposing. They were more concerned about the militant people. What that, were your, that was, what was it, your views that on that? That was in the early days, yeah. In the early yeah. days, they, they, in fact, uh, for, with, for most of the Catholic population, the army were greeted with open arms because they were being victimized and picked on. The army brought, for a few months, brought a sense of stability. But by the time the IRA got fully going and then declared the army the enemy, that took a bit of a time to, to get working. So, yeah, it's right for that time. And I think he picked that that period, that summer of 69, as the focus. And a hell of a lot of people left after that okay. and still do. Yeah. Okay. All right. Darren, follow that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was absolutely charmed by Belfast. And I was a bit surprised because normally films about Ireland don't really do much for me. But, you know, it's not something I, I really get into. But I, I, I thought this was great. Seeing all this through the eyes of this, like, you know, innocent little lad just, just really gave it a whole new per- perspective. And, and I'm not, I, I would obviously, you know, defer to Graham when it comes to, you, you know, the, the accuracy of this film, because I, I personally know nothing about living uh, under religious sectarianism. And so I don't know what's accurate or not. But, well, you know, what, watching this, it's, it, I don't, th- I don't think you can watch this one and not, feel angry from the opening scene when you see people are happy and coexisting and then the attitudes of this you know violent sector just ruining and destroying the harmony that we see and you know life's tough enough as it is but to you know to be bringing this sort of you know division and everything and this is a film you know what i I like about it's a film about ordinary families and people in an atmosphere that most of them didn't ask for that even though I'm, I'm personally, you know, from, from Yorkshire, you know, living, you know, never been to Ireland in my life. I, I could relate to this kid. I, you know, I could emphasize it because when the kid's like visiting his grandparents and he's, you know, and he's going and watching like Star Trek and he's sort of, you know, learning about life through his grandparents, you know, that could have been me as a kid, you know, that relationship that he has, you know, we, we, we always into the same sort of things that I was. You know, he, he got to the same sort of scrapes that I did. I mean, even the, the, the area looked like, um, you know, somewhere where some of my, um, my family lived in Barnsley, you know, the sort of, you know, the sort of bricks and the cobble lanes. I, you know, I could sort of re- relate to that. And the film, it has to be said that the film was absolutely hysterically funny at times. I mean, there was one bit that had me howling when he, um, when there's a knock at the door and it's the rent man and he goes to answer it and his mum pulls him back. And uh, drags him under the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the behind the sofa. I, I, I was howling at that bit. And, and then there's a bit in when the kid gets caught up in the riot, and he has to do something riotous, and, and he ends up stealing washing powder. <laughs> and, and then he go, goes to explain to his mum, you know, why, why have you got that washing powder? And then his mum makes him basically sort of biological. Go, biological. That's it. Biological. And he has to go basically sort of. To, you know, to take it back during this riot, I, it was, I, I can't, I can't speak for his films actually, but I, I, you know, I found it so enjoyable and touching. And that final scene with Judy Dench absolutely broke. Mm. I mean, it's it's the first mm, yeah. time in the, in the theatre in, in 2020 that I've actually had like you know, in tears. I'm not ashamed to say it because 
when she's sort of saying goodbye and she's sort of you know she she basically sort of says you know go and don't come back and you know that it basically she's never going to see her family again but you know it's it's for it's for the best it's for the best of her grandchildren that that just absolutely sort of like really really touched me and and just just a, a, you know, an amazing lovely, lovely lovely little movie and and I was I was you know amazed how charmed I was by it yeah it was a wonderful film do you think Darren that that payoff at the end with Judy Dench uh, you know the the seeds of it were laid in that scene when she was talking about Lost Horizon. Well, about the piece about Shangri La never Shangri-La, came to Belfast. Yeah. Never came to Belfast. That was such a wonderful line. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, now you mentioned. I, I, I honestly didn't pick that up at, at the time because I, I, I'll be perfectly honest. Towards the end, I was really scared that something really bad was going to happen because it just oh, seemed that yes, we were going. We were, because we're going for this like uplifting end where they were going to get away and start a new life, and I was convinced something bad was going to happen to the dad. I, I thought some sort of gum me of it because it just felt set up for that. So I was really on edge at the thing. And to be honest, it was once we were on the bus and going away, I, I, I was actually relieved by that. And I thought he was going to walk into the pub. You know, the bit where he walks into the pub to yeah. get his dad because hmm. his pop has died. I yeah. thought that's the point. He's going to go into the pub and somebody's going to come behind him. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. totally with you there. I thought this is going to go sideways, but I think that's probably it. with those sort of films you're not used to getting an uplifting ending, and I know, but it wasn't a hundred percent uplifting because you have that slogan that it was for, for the people, you know, that basically said so many people, you know, left, but there were so many people who couldn't leave, you know, and so it was like a, a mixed, you know, a mixed feelings there. But the fact that this one family is sort of got a sense that you know for, for them they they moved on, and, and again, you don't know what their lives were going to be like afterwards because you know they're going into England, which at the time was not the most welcoming of. Of places to other nationalities, particularly you know the Irish in years to come. So you don't know, you know, but then they're not out, you know, but they're at least in in a safer place than they were, and and, and then possibly a, a better future than the one they had here. So it, it was kind of uplifting, but also, but like I say, I, I was really tense at the end, and I think that that's a testament to the film is that I really did care about this family, and and it sort of you know it mm, really got yeah, me. But yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, again, that's you know, just point, another reason why it yeah. was a wonderful film. We come to the second film tonight, which again evoked many feelings about my own childhood, though nothing as strong as Graham's, uh, or even, and I'll come on to that in a minute, some of the things Darren's just said. I also grew up in an insular community, but without the violence and sectarianism on show, apart from... Sectarianism, not sectarianism. No, it's like gardening. That's for chopping um, um, plants up. Yeah, what he said. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah, the well, violence, uh, other than when me and Neil get together, is when the uh, Valley Girls also get together, which I mentioned in an earlier review. Now, the strange thing for me about Belfast was it being filmed in black and white. And I was thinking, again, as I left the cinema, but my memories of uh, of that age and time, and they're all vivid colour, probably the 60s, and even though you didn't do drugs at a young age, you inhaled them from someone near you. But this that difference is important. The black and white stylistically reveals both the oppressive and violent nature of those areas. Uh, Graham, do you think I'm right there? Oh, yeah, because uh, I watched this at the same time as my brother Frank, and uh, as he said, yeah, at least he did it in black and white, because all he could remember of growing up in Belfast was that the rainbows were black and white. You know, it was that oppressive and... Um, 
uh, he really, I mean, he really hated uh, living in, in Northern Ireland. And as soon as he could, he got off to, well, living in L.A. Um, so, you know, he just wanted to get out. Aren't like, the women like more all, attractive in L.A.? Slightly. Yeah. Slightly, yeah. Okay. They, uh, yeah. I'm sure that wasn't a poll for Frank. Um <clears throat> But, <laughs> I mean, come on, we were kids at the time. I mean, the sexiest thing we ever saw was an off-the-shoulder school cardigan. Come on. <laughs> Is that something you were wearing? <laughs> Not saying. Not saying, no. no, no. Um, but apart from what Graham was saying, I'm also fascinated with what Darren was saying about his family and his memories. Now, it didn't do that for me, oddly. But it was the entertainment side show uh, that that I really related to and made Belfast very accessible to me. Little things like the Star Trek episode being shown on a Saturday afternoon in 1969, which is absolutely spot on correct. And also, and this is something both Graham and I have spoken yeah, about before, yeah. and and again you mentioned it, the importance of the Western TV shows and films, the embracing of the American West in Celtic communities from the 50s to the 70s can't be understated in this film we have high noon and the man who shot liberty valence and both films are used to make points within belfast there's the bully and the stand-in against evil that's very clever from mr branner and these western standards permeate into the family life as shown it's a strong family unit seen as the anchor in this society falling apart and the father standing up in his own way just like high noon is very subtly done and the actors make it totally believable. But it does help when you get a cast as strong as this. All the performers are good. But Kieran Hines, as the grandfather, mm. gives, for me, the performance of his career. And I'm so glad to see he's been Oscar nominated. Also great work. I'm sure Neil will correct me if I get this wrong as well. Uh, Katriona Bell? Katrina. Katrina, is it? Yeah, just the Irish spelling. Is it? Yeah, Katrina. with Graham. <laughs> yeah. yeah, great. Okay. <laughs> It's not logical, is it? Katrina Balfe as the mother, and show, she showed her work in Le Mans 66 was no flash in the pan. So you have great performances and a wonderful recreation of time and place. And yet, you know me, I've got to complain about something. There is a flaw at the centre of the movie that stops me wholeheartedly recommending it. That flaw is the director, the man whose life it is. Perhaps he was too close to the material, but Kenneth Branagh tries too hard with the direction and the editing. It lacks focus. Graham, you said that he takes it from different perspectives. To me, he should have done like To Kill a Mockingbird and kept a child's perspective throughout. And I think that would have had more impact than the use of the arty shots and framing <laughs> and woke that the story just <laughs> doesn't need. It undermines a very important message. I believe we should view Belfast not as nostalgia, but as a warning. And be thankful, especially after Graham's comments, that you weren't there. And perhaps that is the real lesson and real triumph of the film. I don't know if I agree with that, Jeff. I no. think uh, we've had enough of Belfast. You were heart. only there. <laughs> I was only there for 13 years. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think we've had enough of um, that sort of thing. It was just so different. Darren says, you know, there were tears in my eyes at the end. And when Pop died and, you know, and those spoiler alert, <laughs> when the grandfather dies and, the, you know, it was just so charming and yeah yeah, yeah. i well, loved okay. him i loved him explaining how to do his homework you know by spread betting his yes. his answers yes. to his arithmetic yeah. that was just put a two down it can look like a seven, seven. or something like that wasn't it yeah well 
<clears throat> All I'll say is a sequel's already in the works. No. Bo- yeah, Bodger's planning Belfast 2 with Northern Ireland Protocol. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> right. Say no more. Neil. So I've, I've heard from several people um, who've seen it, but not, not uh, beyond this little group, uh, that, that it was a sentimental look at 1969 Belfast. But I don't see how Kenneth Branagh could have done otherwise since we're seeing it through the eyes of the nine-year-old child. He definitely looks like he drew drew certain inspiration from Alfonso Cuarón's Roma, although this is far lighter in tone and nor as ambitious. He also had to quickly establish a sense of community in the street and then smash a hole in it when the riots start. And I think he really did that very well. The opening third is extremely well well set up. The use of Kieran Hines, also from Belfast, as was Jamie Dornan, uh, worked well with the with uh, Jane Judy Dench and Jude Hill, the wide-eyed nine-year-old romantic. He kept the family theme going while outside the troops are moving in and the barricades are going up. As mentioned before, Katrina Balfe is superb. Darren has already stolen my thunder where Buddy steals the washing powder. Is her explosion of anger and his plaintive response, it's biological, made me roar with laughter. She's the perfect for the role. Uh, I still have the song Everlasting Love in my head, and the Van mm. Morrison songs were a neat touch. The Ooh, trips to the cinema. Yeah, uh, the, tri- the trips to the cinema were brilliant. The Chitty oh, yes. Chitty Bang Bang scene brought back memories. I remember sort of as as it goes off the cl- cliff for the first time when you see it, you literally lean forward as your stomach goes. Uh, yes, the film has its faults. It's unashamedly Kenneth Branagh's love letter to the city. Branagh completely ignores the why part of the troubles, preferring to keep to the point of view of a nine-year-old, such as whether he can still like the Catholic girl in his class. Uh, the characters in the family are really well drawn, and the ending as granny and girlfriend are left behind are especially sad, as has been mentioned before. I thought this was absolutely brilliant. Fair enough. Phil? The thing I was going to add, because you were saying about how it reminded you guys of your childhood, so obviously uh, I, it wasn't safe to play in the streets when I was a kid, but the thing that most like made sense to me from this child's eye, eye view is that your grandparents, no matter what they tell you, are absolutely right all the time. They know how how things are, I, and that was one of the the best bits for me. Is all those chats with his pop? Yes. Who yeah. basically, no matter what he said to him, his pop knew best. He yeah. had an answer um, for everything, didn't he? Yeah. But yeah, I, I found the film to be funny, romantic, and poignant. I think you can really tell how much it means to Kenneth Branagh. It, mm. it is his love letter to a community broken apart. Because I like to disagree with Jeff, I really loved the arty camera work. Of course you did. Of course you did. Um, Yeah, yeah. I thought it really added to the film. There was one specific shot where it was a single still camera and there were about four different characters who at different points sort of spoke in the scene and the focus of the camera changed as those people entered and and left Mm. the conversation. Yeah, yeah. And and that's just one example. I, I thought that... You know those sorts of little touches. You know, really add to the, to you know what you're watching. It really makes it cinematic. Again, unfortunately for Graham, I really did like the music as well. I really like the Van Morrison soundtrack, <laughs> even if he is an anti-vaxxer or whatever he is these days. Twat, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I have to say, the everlasting love scene probably yes. is going to be one of the standout single scenes yeah. of any film that you'll see this year. You know, Jude Hill, who's the little boy, I thought he was really good. But 
I thought what was even better was all of the actors around him. And, and you've mentioned quite a few of these already. Kieran Hines is hilarious as pop. Jamie Dolan, I thought, was brilliant as the guy who was kind of separated, but you know, desperately trying to find something else for his family. And he's, you know, the, the key bit of the everlasting love scene. Mm. But stand out for me, and a couple of you said this, absolutely head and shoulders above everyone else in the film is Katrina Balfe. Yeah. I thought she was absolutely radiant. And I've not really been aware of her before. My wife was like, what do you mean? She's in Outlander, which I've never <laughs> watched. Um, and there's a number of series of that, apparently. But my wife was like, yeah, she's brilliant in that. And I, I was like, okay. But she, I thought Katrina Balfe was the actual, I thought she was the heart and soul of the film. I thought she was the yeah. best thing in it. I think you mentioned the Oscar noms, Jeff. She didn't get a sniff and I'm really I know, surprised. I was surprised. Yeah, I was disappointed mm. with that. And the only thing I will say, which I thought was the only bum note in the entire film, and you've, a few of you have mentioned it as a really amazing bit, the bit where Judy Dench speaks directly to camera completely ruined it for me. I thought, I thought, I thought that whole scene was really emotional. I completely agree with you about how you know it had tears in my eyes. It's really mm. sort of charged sort of thing. And when the camera goes straight to her face and she speaks directly into camera, just felt it was totally unnecessary because the entire film prior to that had been completely subtle and joyful and you know, emotional and poignant, everything that you want it to be. And then he just kind of went, and now I'm going to hit you on the head with a hammer. <laughs> and, and that for me was the only bum note in what I thought was a really, really thoroughly brilliant film. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for that, particularly uh, Graham for sharing some of your life experiences with us. Yeah. So, Belfast, a powerful British film which is still showing in cinemas and nominated for loads of awards. Well worth checking out. And now we go even further back into Graham's youth for the setting of our next film, <laughs> Nightmare Alley. I will ask you simple questions. You will answer in short sentences only what you believe to be absolute truth. Absolute truth. I can do that. Now, brief as you can, what is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. Mr. Carlisle? Doctor, how about that? Please lay down. Can you read minds? Yes, I can, under the right circumstances. What do I want? To be found out, same as everybody else. Are you in contact with the beyond? Well, we've had our share of snake charmers in the past. We deal with them. If you displease the right people, the world closes in on you very, very fast. Nightmare Alley, a film noir based on the book by William Lindsay Gresham, which was previously filmed in 1947, set in the late 1930s, down-on-his-luck drifter Stanton Carlyle, Bradley Cooper, gets a job in a carnival. It turns out Stanton has a natural flair for the clairvoyant cons pulled on the punters. To develop his skills, he's trained by Madame Zena, Tony Collette, and her husband Pete, David Strathairn. Eventually, Stanton comes to believe his future and fortunes lie elsewhere and develops big city plans. 
However, big dreams can also lead to crashing downfalls. Jeff, as someone who knows all about contracts, is Guillermo del Toro's follow-up to his Oscar-winning Shape of Water a worthy successor? Not quite, although there is much to commend here. One thing you can always say about the films of Guillermo del Toro is that he creates worlds that your imagination can live in. But that I mean he goes beyond just actors and sets. The colour palette, the locales, and here in Nightmare Alley, even the weather is deliberately chosen to give you a deeper sense of foreboding. The time and place also help. The setting of this movie is the America at the start of World War II, that post-depression era that created the genre of film noir. Bradley Cooper, an actor who grows with every film, is excellent as the rotten at the core anti-hero, ably supported by Roni Mara, and for me, the star of the film, Kate Blanchett. Now, I want to stop and talk about Kate Blanchett for a moment. Blanchett plays what could have easily been a cliche, the femme fatale. Those with a knowing of the genre are aware from the first scene that she appears in, she's trouble with a capital T. Yet she humanises the character. You may not like her, but by the end you understand her. That's just astonishing. I want to go back now to the weather. All the moments of the film where she is central to the action, the weather is ice cold and snowing, a sort of ice palace for an ice maiden. And that's just one aspect of the film. The big con, the introduction to the geek as other examples, are all well put together sequences with strong characters. And yet, while I admire the film greatly, there are flaws. And Phil won't be surprised to hear me say it's simply too long. Scenes from the middle section, like the reuniting with the carnival family, are unnecessary and slow the plot down. Noir needs to be tight, and 20 minutes out of this movie would have helped, especially with a director who knows how to use movie references as a shorthand. For example, I greatly enjoyed the influence of Ted Browning's film Freaks. But then Del Toro does know his movies. Nightmare Alley is a film, even with its flaws, that cries out to be seen in a cinema. And it's such a disappointment that this failed at the box office, while the stylistically similar reboot of Perry Mason was a huge hit on TV. Was it because it's too dark or adult audiences are still not going back to cinemas in significant numbers? Not sure. All I'm sure about is this is another great work from one of the best directors of our time. Darren. There are times when you just watch a film that's just doing really well, every single little aspect of it, just really well made. And this was one of them. I mean, for a start, the film looks absolutely tremendous. The period setting and everything, the, you know, the, the sets, the, um, the, the costumes, all look immaculate. And, and the cast is absolutely amazing. I mean, there's amazing performances left, right and centre. I mean, Kate Blanchett, William Defoe and, and Tony Collette, they're the real standouts. But there's so many great small characters throughout that just sort of made this absolutely just this sort of really, you know, absolutely packed, a great novel of, of a movie. And, and, you know, one of the things that, I, I, that really worked for me is that I'm sort of a bit of a, a fan of your, your old pulp fiction type stories. And this one's got so many of those mixed in because you've got you've got the freak horror show um, at the start. You have the, the con man on a scam, and then you have a murder mystery, the film that mystery, all, all mixed up with uh, you know it all telling the story of this one character is is rise and, and fall, and it all it all really gelled really great for me. The tone of this film is unrelentlessly grim. 
but it commits itself totally to, to this. And, and somehow, even though it's a grim film and really heavy and cold in places, it never feels depressing or a, a down uh, or a downer. And I think that's possibly because it, it's it's so entertaining throughout. There's so much you know going going on in there. And I think one of the things that I really like is it, it manages for for just a brief time to have our, our, um, our main guy, um, Stanton Carlyle, who is this absolutely horrible person doing really, you know, ho- horrible things. He runs into a set of villains who are unbelievably even more vile than him. So he becomes sort of an anti-hero uh, at the time. But he still manages to get his comeuppance in the, in the end. I thought this, I, th- I think this film's absolutely ma- magnificent. I, I didn't feel the length of it at all. Um, I, I was just sort of, I think because the story moves around so much and there's, you know, there's so many different plots going on, I was uh, totally interested the whole time. My, my one quibble, and this is probably just on on, on, on my tiny little um, brain not being able to retain like so, so many plot lines, is that when the whole plot and the, the twists start coming crashing down and you sort of you get told about the scam that's been going on the whole time, I could have, I would have actually welcomed a montage of flashbacks, just showing how all that came together. You get that a lot in in films. It will basically show you all, just little things they come sort of like you know. And I was trying to sort of visualize everything in in my mind, sort of make all that work. And so I, w- I would have appreciated ju- just a little help. Maybe don't treat me with a um, <laughs> um, don't assume that I'm going to be able to take all this information in. That 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 would have would have been appreciated, but otherwise, I think this is absolutely masterpiece of a, a movie. I thought it was absolutely fan- fantastic. How do you compare it to Shape of Water? Oh God, now you're asking. Um, Shape of Water is a, a, a different beast. It's um, it's got characters that you're more rooting for in that one. You, you have, you have a, a clear sense of sort of good of uh, you know yeah. good guys, bad guys, sort of sort of thing, and and also for for what a bit of words, but. And, and also that one's a, a, a lot more gentler movie. I mean, it is at the end of the day, it is like a, a, a romance story, uh, which is, this one certainly is not. The two films, they are similar in, in a little bit in the sort of style, but I think they're a completely different story. But Shape, Shape of Water is, is a lot more optimistic movie. Uh, you know, that, and, and, you know so, so that's what I would I would take on this, where this, this one is sort of, you know, a, a more grim hard-hitting movie okay thank you graham oh i agree with everything everybody said this is adult cinema dark disturbing intelligent mysterious and luscious why do these types of films come around so infrequently because they flop at the box office they flop at the box yeah that's twice Mm. that's the jewel and this both flopped and they're both adult movies and it's just absolutely shameful. I mean, I can't understand it. I mean, this is stuffed with acting talent, as everybody said, and it's, you know, a director who knows how to get great performances out of this stellar cast. Bradley Cooper delivers a haunting performance as the central character who is unlikable, but you understand his motivations. And Kate Blanchett as the femme fatale, the sort of woman your mother warned you about. William Defoe at his sleazy William Defoe best. I mean, David Strathairn delivers a career best performance as the alcoholic mentalist. All of this talent 
pulls you into the very dark corners of Nightmare Alley and delivers an engaging story of betrayal and intrigue and a circular story that takes you on a long journey from murder to insanity. It's just wonderful. There really is not a lot to say. Del Toro delivers a solid, old-fashioned movie populated with diverse and interesting characters. The set dressing is sumptuous. The lighting and cinematography are so well connected. They seem conjoined. I want to live in Kate Blanchett's Art Nouveau office. It was just wonderful. And I love the way this film just drew me in. You start to understand the characters, their lives, their motivations. You just, when you're getting comfortable and interest and, and invested, everything goes sideways and unravels faster than you can keep up. Then, just when you think it's all over, there's that little extra kick to finish the movie off. Yeah, this was such a great film. And I'm already planning to watch it with my wife as soon as it comes out on streaming. I'm planning a date night with her, you know, Valpolicello, Pervolna, Crackers, and then this film, a perfect evening. And Love. a chicken dinner. Yes, <laughs> chicken dinner. <laughs> Sick old Jeff. <laughs> There's no hope for you, Jeff. Uh, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. this was another film that I absolutely loved. So we're free for free. Can we make it every film that we review tonight? Who knows? <laughs> oh, I think we're going to go four for four. Foreshadowing. One of the things uh, Graham just mentioned actually really rang, rings true with me. It, the storyline is circular. Yeah. And we've talked about this before. I obviously, I really like films that have storylines that are circular. Mm. Like this. I think... I think it's always quite, Darren mentioned it, when that penny drops and everything comes together and you're like, ah, that's why you did that. That is why you did that thing an hour and a half ago. And it's just really, really clever. So, yeah, I loved it. I think it's got a great sense of time and period. The grim outlook, not just in terms of that period, but in terms of men's souls, you know, know, they're all nastier than the next sort of thing. It looks stunning. And you were talking about other Del Toro films. The one I would equate this to is Crimson Peak. Mm. Um, If Crimson Peak was a tribute to old-fashioned gothic romance films, this is a tribute to film noir. It's almost, for me, as if Del Toro is making films in the wrong era because he has this amazing ability to make these modern versions of old films. And... I think for once, Jeff got it absolutely smack on on the money when he said that Del Toro understands a film so well that what he's doing, to some extent, is almost going, I love this genre of film. I'm going to go and make a brilliant movie in that genre. And you can see that with um, Crimson Peak, with this, with The Shape of Water. Even if you go back to... um, in his early days, and his first English language film, Mimic, which I think is a pretty decent B movie horror as well. So, which have you seen the full director's cut? Yes, I have. I have watched the director's cut, and yeah, you've mentioned people have mentioned the acting. I'm going to talk about it as well. Kate Blanchett is absolutely sublime. Mm-hmm. She's a femme fatale who would trap any man. Frankly, if you gave me the full lowdown and warning prior to me to walking into that Art Deco. Uh, office still absolutely fall for her it's, 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 there's no stopping it it's going to happen i um, suggest yeah i'd like to live in that dark echo but, but it would have to be with kate blanchard, yeah, it's, it's kate blanchard there as well yeah yeah, um, yeah. 
Uh, Bradley Cooper is brilliant. Again, we've talked about him in Licorice Pizza. Um, so he really sells um, this troubled soul. And yeah, to some extent, I really actually sort of feel sorry for him because he's he is trying in his own mind to achieve something and to further, you know, what yeah. he's doing. He yeah. just he just isn't strong enough to to stop himself sliding, basically. Rooney Mara, Tony Collette, David Streffen, they're all brilliant as well. And I was thinking Rooney Mara is probably the sort of actress that Del Toro could put in all of his films because she has this such an ethereal beauty Ooh, that she really ethereal. fits into yeah. his um uh into his sort of oeuvre of films. And the other thing I was going to say, and I don't know if any of you guys have seen it, but the first sort of hour when we're going, we've got the whole carnival and we're seeing all the sort of different characters and mm. stuff, it really reminded me of an absolutely fantastic TV series called Carnival. Yes. If you guys have seen it. Yeah. It only ran for two series, and it's almost like a Stephen King, good versus evil, mm. crossed with Twin Peaks, set in a carnival in like this sort of depression era. Um, it's absolutely fantastic, and I, I've really evoked that kind of stuff in, the, in the, all the circus scenes. But yeah, I loved it. Great film. Okay. One one thing I want to pick up is you, you're saying about Bradley Cooper, and what really struck me, without giving the end away, is that when he had that laugh at the end, when he realised all the pieces are coming together for him in a way that you know he probably wouldn't have wanted in, in earlier on. And, but I was thinking of that movie he made with David O. Russell, American uh, American Hustle. Yeah. And he did yeah. all that manic laugh, which is completely over the top. And I really disliked his performance in that film. And it just shows the journey he's been on to get to this and be so subtle at the end of Nightmare Alley. Well, I think his last three films have been A Star is Born, Licorice Pizza and this, haven't they? I mean... They're all phenomenal performances. Mm. Um, I think he's got his next directorial uh, film lined up as well. Okay, yeah, I did read that. Neil, watching watching a horror movie. I'm going to go against the grain, I'm afraid. I thought Bradley Cooper was terrible. I thought he was the problem with the film. He's also a producer in the film, which I think may be, may be part of my problem. Uh, it's, he's he's too nice a person, and I don't think he did that selfish character very well. He's sort of, yeah, I don't know. Sure, he's a jerk in other films, but he always seems to come good. And this one, he didn't have any redeeming features, and that's a shame. I mean, I'll watch it again and see if I can get past this uh, his casting. But, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I mean, to be fair, the film is stunning, the, the Gorgeous colour palette, and of course the stellar cast. Um, apart from, I'm afraid Bradley Cooper. Um, initially, I was full of phrase, uh, praise. It was an interesting story, interesting people. Del Toro's great at creating worlds. Done it repeatedly, and this is no exception. But for some reason, I I just I got after about two weeks, I couldn't remember what the film was about. It was absolutely weird. Maybe that's me. Maybe it's the sort of whatever effects and everything of of, of, um, of medicines and whatever. But I genuinely couldn't remember I'd seen it. I looked at it and thought, no, I, I don't remember that one. I had to look it up and I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 I got it. I mean, the cast is is fantastic. And it's a, it's, it is a decent story. Um, but just Bradley Cooper. I mean, right. Rooney Mara, <clears throat> Tony Collette, Kate Blanchett, absolutely fantastic. 
And if you like Bradley Cooper, like everybody else seems to like him, it's fine. It's a brilliant film. It just didn't work for me. So firstly, Neil, stop lacing your alcohol with opium. (laughs) (laughs) Or share it, one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I thought there'd be some comeback. You know, when... Phil and I are on the same page. You're on the. Phil, I, I'm going to let you go at him. Just didn't seem to work for me. I don't know why. It's weird. Wow. Uh, yeah. You know, when there's a film that one person really likes and everybody else hates, then maybe we should listen to the person <laughs> that, that has a different view. On uh, I wonder yeah, where right. that was going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to say four people liked and one piece person <clears throat> didn't. No, 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 no. No, no, so, just the one. Okay, that was Nightmare Alley, not exactly a box office success and can now be found on video on demand. It's well worth seeking out. So after three cracking films from the three masters of the art, let's go to our final review of the month, Moonfall. I've made a shocking discovery. I need you to get me in touch with NASA immediately. Well, NASA and I aren't really on speaking terms these days. Well, that'll change. When you tell them that the moon is out of orbit. There's no need to panic. Not crazy! Why are they lying about all this? It's too late to stop. You knew all this was happening before NASA. You are the unidentified source? Oh, yes. We're dealing with an intelligent entity. We're planning a mission to attack this thing. I'm asking you for your help. Say yes, Brian. The latest from the master of disaster, the champion of chaos, director Roland Emmerich. As it says on the tin, the moon is quite literally falling into the earth. Can it be stopped? Luckily, we have an intrepid trio who are prepared to use a mothball space shuttle to get... I can't believe I'm reading this garbage. (laughs) A mothball space shuttle to get to the moon and try to find a way to reverse this catastrophe. And just who are these larger-than-life heroes? One of the heads of NASA and former astronaut Joe Fowler, played by Halle Berry. Then there is brilliant but disgraced astronaut Brian Harper, Patrick Wilson. Finally, there is the conspiracy theorist who saw this coming, Casey Houseman, played by John Bradley. Dr. Casey Houseman. Or Samuel (laughs) Tarley, as we all know him from Game of Thrones. (laughs) Can they save the day? And will there be much mayhem first? Darren, this sounds like a lot of other movies I could mention. Is that fair comment? Yeah, I mean, it's funny you should say that because Moonfall's plot, when I was watching, it, it reminded me of back when I was a real Hong Kong movie enthusiast. And you will get some of these films sometimes that would just steal big chunks from other movies and just tie them together all into one big mess. And here you have a film that starts with, starts with gravity. Um, it goes into Armageddon yeah. uh, and sudden impact and then has elements of The Abyss, Terminator, 2001. And then there's even a bit of um, like a subplot, like a Fast and Furious movie. And they're, they're, they're just all the bits that are off the top of my head. You know, there's probably a lot more sort of mixed in there as well. And and, and not to mention the fact that he, um, you know, he basically in this film, you know, absolutely recycles his um, 
his own movies in there for stuff that he's done before. You've got all the cliches. You've got the quirky nerd that has all the answers. You've got the hero who is disgraced and for something that he was wrongly blamed for and has an estranged family who is having difficulties uh, with because of it. And yet he's the one person who gets called on to save the day. And this is all after Emmerich chastised Marvel movies for not bringing us anything new. I mean, that's a <laughs> that's irony if there ever was one. <laughs> uh, so anyway, plot-wise, this is one of the dumbest films I've seen in ages. And and for some, even for someone like me who isn't a slave to logic or scientific accuracy, <laughs> this was a real stretch of imagination all the way through. There was utterly ridiculous moments like this uh, gun battle and car chase going on while world events were uh, world ending events were uh, you know going on around them. You have the film turning into Star Wars near the end, and 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 I'll be perfectly honest, I, I lost track of what the actual plan to save the Earth was, what we were trying to do, and how actually it all worked in the end to actually put the uh, the moon back back on its axis. That completely baffled me. The weird thing is, though, after all that, after all this film's shortcomings and everything, I really did enjoy my viewing experience of this film. And I honestly don't know why. I, I enjoyed watching this film in the cinema a lot more. and In fact, yeah, a lot more than way better films which I've watched lately. I think it, and, and I'm not going to go down the it's so bad, it's good rule to anything. I think it, maybe it's just that this was so silly from the start of it it never sort of strived to be any anything more than that and i was just enjoying how much more and more ridiculous the film got as we went along objectively it was bad it, it was badly written it, you know it was going all over the place but i couldn't help having fun and frankly in an age where sci-fi films are becoming more and more highbrow with films like interstellar that this big dumb b-movie that was totally ridiculous it just felt really refreshing and 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 comforting it, i don't know why i came out of it as as happy as I, I did and i think it part of it is because it was so ridiculous it was fun seeing how more weird it was going to get and um, but maybe it was and it also had this like you know this really sort of nice gentle vibe about the film it, it just felt fun it just, you know, that, that is the thing. It felt fun and I was never bored by it at all. I will say that I thought for a film that was that was this expensive, the special effects were really, well, well, the ones on Earth were really un, uninspiring. There was very little creativity with the with the scenes of the, of the apocalypse that was going on. I actually watched Independence Day, uh, re-watched it again the, the other week, and that one brought a lot more sense of the sort of world coming to a, a, an end. There was a, a, a lot more in that than, than this. This seemed very focused on just a very small few areas. And, and the special effects that they, that they did have looked quite fake. They were almost video game quality. I mean, the, the seas look, you know, fake for, for so, so much of this film. I, I, I wasn't impressed by, by those at all. The stuff in space I found far more impressive. I've got to say that the, the performances from Wilson, Berry and Bradley, I, I really liked. I found the, the characters charming. And, and I've got to say that they were complete pros in this film because the script that they had was, was basically nothing to worry <laughs> But they, they, you never felt that... If it was someone like a, a Bruce Willis or someone in there, 
you would get the sense that they were felt that this was beneath them. And this this they didn't they, mm. they basically tried with what they had. And I think that really shone through. So I was I was real I really admired them for this. I mean this is this is a film that you've got completely got to switch your brain off for to enjoy but i seem to have just been in the completely right mode for it that there's some there's something that just sort of worked here it was daft it, it was silly it was you know it, it did some re- really weird choices i mean the whole thing of the moon being like hollow and being this alien base it, it was t- totally r- ridiculous but but i liked it and, and i don't know why and to be perfectly honest i, I probably don't care why why i, I just you know it, it, for a couple of hours it entertained me and and I, and I liked that about it. Thank you, Darren. I thought that was a very balanced review. You looked at some of the stuff that didn't work for you and, and some of the positive stuff and totally balanced. Now let's go to Phil. <laughs> so the thing is, is everyone who listens to this show and and all of you already know what I think of this film, right? I mean, so I just, right off the bat, it's awful. Like, I didn't enjoy it. In an effort to be balanced, I will say what I liked and what I didn't like. Whenever a film like this comes along, I always want it to be fun. I want it to be some good, fun action set pieces, a bit silly, and a good time. That's what I want. And and I don't go into these films thinking, oh, this is going to be rubbish. I want to watch a two-and-a-half-hour Paul Thomas Anderson film. I don't do that. But I always find they just fall into the same traps. So my hope when you have a film that has got a really high-concept, preposterous story is that it's going to get through that setup really quickly because the quicker you get to the explosions and the crazy fun, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, that's yeah. better. Because it's nonsense, right? I don't need to hear you scientifically tell me that the moon is falling and this is going to create X, Y, and Z and blah, blah, blah. Shut up, blow stuff up and like do something, right? Because that's why we're there, right? It's going to be fun. But this has a really incredibly tedious and long setup. We've got a prologue. We've got investigation. We've got conspiracy. Donald Sutherland turns up and disappears in a matter of minutes. I seriously, (laughs) there has to be something on the cutting room floor. Seriously? Donald Sutherland shows up for what? Two scenes and just disappears. What on earth happened there? That was bizarre. Um, There's a two, two, two hour, 40 minute cut of this. Is there? That, there? that some people have mm, seen. And I think sure you're I'll right. That. <laughs> yeah, but, the, <laughs> um, but and, and this, and I guess this makes or breaks for me. I agree with what Darren just said about the space stuff is actually better than the earth stuff because all that guff about broken families and attempts to pull our heartstrings and we've got to have the yeah and and again uh darren just said it roland emmerich doing what he always does he has to have the family having their own little let's race to the mountains and go skiing bit it's like, I don't care. Like, I really, like, it has the most undeserved uh, dramatic sacrifice <laughs> scene in like I've ever seen in any movie. I was just like, what? He's dead? Whatever. Like, move on. So I'm glad but, I'm not related to you. Um. <laughs> and then 
in these times of all things we've got a conspiracy theorist who's the hero he's right about everything no logic no no research he's just bloody right let's listen to the conspiracy theorist guys so they're the things i didn't like and you know i didn't like the film overall generally you know Honestly, the broken family stuff is just dire. Um, they might as well. Did they have a dog? Did they have a dog? I don't think they should no. have had a dog. Let's face it, they no. could have had a dog. They didn't have. We a should dog. have had a dog that like dramatically jumps out of an explosion or something. They should mm. have had a dog. Yeah. But what did I like? Again, Darren's already said it. Patrick Wilson and Halle Berry are brilliant. They're really fully committed. The other guy, uh, Samuel Tarly. He's funny. <laughs> he is brilliant. really funny. And I watched, <laughs> I watched "Marry Me" um, the other day, which I actually really enjoyed. That is a like that is quintessential rom com, and he's funny in that as well. I hope he gets a few more of these sort of sidekick funny roles. He's he's actually good at this sort of stuff. Are you telling me that "Marry Me" is better than Moonfall? Oh yeah, I'd rather watch "Marry Me" again than <laughs> "Moonfall." Dear, oh dear! Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent, hundred and ten percent. Yeah. So what else was so? D- Darren said it all. I'm just going to repeat what Darren said. The bit where they copy all the sci-fi movies—that's fun. It's almost yes. becomes farcical to a point. I thought Contact was in there as well. If that helps it to the yeah. list of many things it, it copied, and also. One of my most sort of enjoyable parts of the film was thinking about how all the scientists are basically like having their minds blown at how insane the different like things that are happening are. They basically, I mean, maybe there's some science in there, but I thought, I, I thought, so. right, no. I can imagine the writer, the writer's room is they put up on a wall every kind of disaster, like you know, tsunami. <laughs> like etc cetera, etc cetera. and they just threw darts at it and they're like right next scene throw a dart right now this is going to happen the moon falling will definitely cause this somehow i honestly think if they didn't spend an hour or however long it was trying to make me believe that that was real and just got to the absolute bonkers blowing stuff up stuff and maybe had a dog, maybe I would have enjoyed it, <laughs> but I didn't. It's, it is absolute trash. Well, thank you for that balanced view. And now, now over to someone else, also well-known for his balance, Neil. <laughs> yes, I know, it's rubbish. But I, I, don't, I saw it this afternoon, so at least I remember it anyway. Um, I, I enjoyed it. No, I said it. I enjoyed it. I laughed at some of the funny bits. Samuel Tali is very, very funny. I rolled my eyes at the ever so clunky dialogue. I mean, at one point, I I believe, and I have to watch it again now, uh, Halle Berry actually rolls her eyes as she's saying one of the lines. I I ignored the vast plot holes and the disregard for science. I didn't understand the ending. How did it resolve itself? Suddenly the moon was there and it was there and everything just calms down just straight away like that. Most of the blockbuster films are terrible and I I do hate them. Independence Day is just, I just cannot watch that crap. But for every day after tomorrow rubbish, there's an Armageddon that's somehow watchable. For every Olympus has fallen, there's a White House down. I mean, it's entirely derivative. You could probably list, have a sort of bullshit bingo and and list off all the films that it's referenced. There's nothing new in here. And there was even a part when the AI describing our ancestors' world building that remind me of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. (laughs) 
I, I spent an enjoyable few moments remembering that Slarty Bartfast did all the fields around Norway. <laughs> he won an award, you know. And it's just oh, it's enjoyable, incredibly stupid pulp. Oh, I came sorry, out with a silly grin on my face. Okay. Well, now to someone who will probably see the science in this that you, everybody else might be missing. <laughs> Not just Graham. ignore it. <laughs> yeah. I always spend a few minutes uh, after a film jotting down my initial thoughts. From Moonfall, I just wrote, unscientific twaddle. <laughs> let's, let's, let me just say this to be clear. This is the most stupid film I have ever seen. <laughs> and the line is, I bless the rains down in Africa. Who knew? <laughs> That's Two shit science fiction films Toto have featured in. Steady on, you're crossing a line here. (laughs) Right, once I had accepted that the science advisor on this film was a (laughs) five-year-old, then you can just get on with it, sit back and enjoy the action scenes, which are almost constant. I said to Jeff, it wasn't a complete waste of two hours, and that's about as complimentary as I can be. You know, the CGI is the most constant and there's a lot of cgi on this and there's a lot of, it's very very poor i spotted a number of objects cars and helicopters no texture mapping on them at all <laughs> mind you Roland emmerich has destroyed so much of the earth in his previous films that the cgi team probably just built this out of 90 percent of the films using recycled stuff and outtakes from previous films <laughs> Oh, God, the plot and the motivations of the principal characters make no sense whatsoever. Why is a disgraced astronaut unable to get a job? Why is the director of NASA an idiot and a coward? And why is there a five-star general who's unable to follow orders? If the moon is going to crash into the Earth, then what good is it hiding inside a mountain? (laughs) What's that going to (laughs) do? And like Phil, get hit first. did Donald Sutherland just wander onto the set? <laughs> the film? And they put him in a wheelchair and said, just say these few lines. It'll be fine. And pushed him through and they just tracked him with a camera. Yeah, um, With the exception of one person. Can I just say with Donald Sutherland, did anybody think that that felt like the same character from JFK? Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Another film yeah. reference yeah. <laughs> spot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I hated everyone in this film. I mean, with the exception of one person. Uh, Emmerich has a constant recurring theme in his movies of fathers and sons, the best example being The Patriot, which is brutal and hits hard. But in this movie. Hang, that... hang on, sorry, who starred in The Patriot? Uh, I don't uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> you set yourself up um, for that, I'm afraid. <laughs> Jeff bastard. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, but that, that, oh, never mind. That is a good father and son relationship thing. But in this movie, the father and son dynamic returns, and I didn't care. The only character <laughs> I cared about was John Bradley, you know, as, as Dr. Casey Houseman. I mean, at one point in the movie, I thought, hang on, who is she and how is she related to him? And then I realized, no, I don't care. <laughs> All the family dynamics were so poorly worked out that I was not even affected when Michael Penna character died. I really like Penna, and he was so underused in this film. It's criminal. Finally, all the major plot devices in the film were stolen from far better sci-fi books. I mean, the swarm thing attacking the shuttle, and the moon was ripped from a book called Surface Detail by the E&M Banks, 
the megastructure with the revolving spheres, spheres powered by a captured neutron star. Well, that was ripped from Peter F. Hamilton's book, Pandora's Star. Riding the gravity waves was purloined from Nova by Samuel R. Delaney. The AI searching across the galaxy for organic life is explored in the Welsh wizard's Alistair Reynolds' Inhibitor Trilogy. I mean, the film was... And, and Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah. Oh, good one. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that's good, Jeff. Yeah. yeah, this film was bollocks. I wish I'd spent the time reading a good sci-fi book instead. If you want a silly The Earth is Doomed movie, then watch the Chinese film The Wandering Earth. The same five-year-old kid was the science advisor on that movie, <laughs> but it was really exciting and fun and engaging. And Fuzz Aldrin as the cat is a great joke. I like that. <laughs> we have had a good laugh at this film, to be fair. It's, it is. It it's has, silly. It, it's generated a lot of laughter. Well, I'm quite disappointed, to be quite honest. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> um, you guys have been very hard on Roland Emmerich, and I've got a feeling, is it because he's German? <laughs> And, and gay, Jeff, yes. Yeah, well, I didn't want to say that because that doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> in in many ways, Moonfall is the spiritual oh sequel to 2001. Now... Oh, this is going to get better, in Jeff, it? are you seriously off your meds? Can we just stop you every half sentence and laugh <laughs> at the, what you're going to say? Yeah, I knew you'd all put that down. But you look at the themes from Arthur C. Clarke's works... <laughs> And it manages to weave them all into the plot. The alien race, seeded earth, strange artifacts buried on the moon. It's all there, just bigger and better. And why do I say better? Because this movie lacks the pretension of 2001. It's a better film. Like the classic Independence Day, this takes a plot that could easily have been found in a 50s sci-fi movie or pop boiler novel and adds to it. An excellent character-driven cast. There are actors known for playing this type of role, and they do it well. And you've already said it, so, you know, I'm only just repeating what you said. The, you know, uh, Wilson, Bradley, even Charlie Plummer made his part believable. That in lesser hang on, movies... hang on. Charlie Plummer was the teenage boy, wasn't he? Absolutely oh, not. Absolutely oh. not. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, oh, he, he had the sort of face you just wanted to punch. I mean, he was yeah. crap. Leave him in jail. <laughs> Cle- <Exactly>. Clearly, <laughs> clearly, I'm the woke one. Now. Yes, um, you are. Uh, and, uh, but let's move on from the actors. Then let's look at the effects. And he always gets it right. This is spectacle <laughs> cinema at its finest. Now I know you've all said how silly this is. Emmerich knows this. Which is why, if you think about it, events in this film move at breakneck speed. You have no time to think about such things as lack of oxygen. Hang on, wouldn't that kill everybody? Or how does the moon being that near give us moon gravity? They're not important. It's the comic book that's the thing, which is why I'm surprised all of you Marvel fans aren't calling this the best thing of the year so far. Oh, God, please. However... A serious point, I do have something that does worry me about this film, and that's the use of the conspiracy theory characters. I hate conspiracy theory characters, and I would kill them all, personally. Um, (laughs) We are made to believe early on he's a doctor of science. We learn later he's just a conspiracy nutcase. And what happens to him for that? He's literally made into a god. Spoiler alert, yet again, after the event. But he's made into a god. Not a smart move, that one, Roland. But if you found Don't Look Up wanting in the thrills department, and to be <laughs> fair, who didn't, look no further. This is classic sci-fi cinema. 
Do you know what, guys? I had more fun talking about it than I did watching yes, it. Yes, yes. This is way more fun as our usual reviews. So he, okay. it has achieved something. Well, that's the end of our reviews. Darren? What has everyone selected for their film of the month? Neil? For me, Licorice Pizza. For me, Belfast. Uh, for me, Nightmare Alley, even though Moonfall was a close second. Hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with Belfast. Um, I am torn between Licorice Pizza and Nightmare Alley. I'm going to go pizza. Wow. So gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another at the flicks is in the can. Uh, some late news just in. Tiger Woods has now contacted the show directly asking why uh. he wasn't invited to Golfgate. Probably because he didn't have a car at the time. Is this the end of this joke, Jeff? <laughs> it isn't like Jeff to flog a joke to death, though, is it? There'll probably be more next month, guys. <laughs> and to everyone else. Thank you for listening and goodbye. And listen out for a very Golfgate-free Darren Dash coming soon. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.